Very proud of the lifestyle changes that you're making. Oh, now you're recording. <laughs> I'm still adjusting the microphone. I'm okay. proud of all of us. I'm proud of my lifestyle changes, too. Yeah, that's good. It's good to have lifestyle changes. It's um, good to have lifestyles. <laughs> it is, it's good to have life. Mm. It's good to be alive. What a time to be alive. What a time to be alive, indeed. I'm liking this format. For the past couple of times, I haven't been able to see your face. Yeah, you had it buried in a... Um, a reflexor. Yeah, a reflexor. That's not a dirty term, dear listener. Not yet. If you're, <laughs> if you're not familiar with it, it's a sound. It's a tiny little studio that you put around your microphone. Yeah, so you can eliminate kind of like a room noise and stuff like that. Right. Yes. Well, welcome to the Why Aren't You Famous podcast. Yes. Season four, episode acht. Mm, acht. Some little guinea pigs are excited we're recording. There are guinea pigs in the room, ladies and gentlemen. So the reason we have switched is that um, that Andrew Grimm, my co-host, my name is Ellen Cherry. Mm-hmm. Um, when you arrived at um, Ellen Cherry headquarters today, you said, I want us to just record. You know, we're the only two people. <laughs> I'm the only person whose face I see anyway. Right. Because it's the pandemic and we're in a pod pandemic pod <laughs> you're shaking your head yes yeah, I'm, i am nodding this uh, is an auditory medium you have to actually speak words no this is true yeah I, I came in the door and i said um let's record with the with the with the regular handheld mics instead of the fancy mics because i want to see your face <laughs> right while we're having this conversation instead of you know just looking at se reflexor <laughs> right you know so I thought it would be a nice change of pace. Plus, you know, today's episode is special because we're doing something different. We're doing something different. Differently as well. And also, it's the new, it's Inauguration Eve. It is. It's we like are, New Year's Eve. We're on the, oh man, it's, you know, just, you know, it's a countdown. I woke up this morning and I thought about the fact that at the, the time that I woke up, we were less than 30 hours away from having um, the first female vice president in U.S. history to be inaugurated. And um, <laughs> was a guinea pig hair in your mouth? No, it was a regular Andrew hair. <laughs> um, and just how, like, despite everything that's happening, it just felt like a little kernel of light. This little kernel of light, very significant to me personally. Yeah. And I'm holding on to it. Kamala Harris, the first woman of color who's going to be the vice president of the United States tomorrow. Yeah, it's a huge deal. It's huge. It's massive. And also the just the, the fact that the transference of power has happened. Right. Or will happen. And... And explain why we're recording. What's different about this episode today? Well, what's different about this episode is that uh, normally when we started things out, we it, the first season we we wrote essays and produced little vignettes to to talk about a particular topic, and um, we revived that for season four. And season four has been, you know, it's it's been it's been a tough season because of the pandemic and uh, all the existential dread that goes along with it. And I've had some health issues. Yeah, you've been coughing a lot, and which is, uh, you know, to assuage any fears, I've been tested several times. It is not COVID. 
I've also been, uh, through the amazing technology of x-rays, a doctor has looked inside my lungs and mm-hmm. there's no pneumonia. And that's wonderful, but yeah. it's a mysterious issue that we're trying to figure out. So it has made me feel physically unwell, but then also I tend to go down a, a pretty dark mental path when I'm not able to swim or robustly walk around the neighborhood or do the 20,000 things I have on my list every day. Yeah, and... And it's uh, a pandemic. And and, yeah, physical uh, physical illness does affect our emotional status, and, and and so I think you've been struggling with that, so... And I think we've been collectively struggling with the fact that... Um, the Republican Party and Donald Trump as the head of it violently contested yeah. a um, one of the most secure elections in our history. Right. Well, <laughs> so, and... and, and to put it succinctly. I was listening to the radio today, uh, and they were talking about... And, and I know it's true, it just it hadn't really... I guess it's something I, I just was blocking from my mind, but they were talking about... Well, for the first time in United States history, this was not a peaceful transference of power. And because of what happened on January 6th, they were trying to interrupt the process of certifying the election, which is part of the peaceful transference of power. Right. And so here we are, you know, that and that just struck me as as significant. And I know it's significant already, but like it just kind of like emerged. And uh, so all that stuff wrapped together, we decided that on this, for this episode, and maybe from the episodes going out from here on out, uh, we're not going to do the essay thing as much. Uh, We're going to try something different. We're going to shoot from the hip, um, try to be a little bit more footloose and fancy free about about what we're doing. But this is a significant episode because I, I titled it Inauguration, because tomorrow is the inauguration. And... I'm just going to take a second and I'm going to ask you, Ellen Cherry, where were you on the last inauguration? <laughs> so on the last inauguration, we were in a car together. We were in your car. Yep. You're a Honda Fit, which is a life-saving technology. It's an amazing vehicle. Um, and we were headed from Baltimore to Pittsburgh to play the Needs Hotel gig and we were starting a tour. I was going to be with you for a couple of dates. And then... You were in Chicago. And th- Yeah, that's right. You guys dropped me off in Chicago. Ugh, remember dropping me off in Evanston and I forgot a bag in your car and you had to drive all the way back. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, so that's right. You dropped me off in Chicago um, to play a gig with uh, Dolly Varden. And, but we were on a tour for a couple of days together with um, Matt Monta, who's been on the podcast a couple of times. Right. Weren't you also doing a pup? I thought it was a puppetry thing too. In Chicago, yes. it was like a puppetry workshop. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's right. Because that was 2017. Um, I was out there for the. Um, I think it was called a puppetry. Why are you putting your hand up there? <laughs> no, it was the. Um, it was a the Chicago Puppetry Festival, and mm. I was um, invited to be the composer with um, Molly Ross and Annie Howe to work on what we thought was going to be a new show, but um, it ended up like, the, I don't know if non-artists know this, that sometimes you start things and they just don't, it's an experiment. It didn't work out. We no. didn't We didn't finish the show. We did 10 minutes of a new show based on a, a woman's story, um, Opal Whiteley, 
and we made a 10 minute shadow. Um, Molly and Annie devised an, a 10 minute shadow piece and I did um, the music for it and got to be at the University of Chicago for a week and it was super awesome and we saw great shows. I saw one of the most amazing shows based on Norse mythology that I've ever, ever, like the most amazing puppet show I've ever seen. Um, which I think it was called Mrs. Pennyworth, Mrs. Pennyville. I have to look it up. It was so great and had this amazing shadow puppetry done by this famous shadow puppetry company, Great Norse Mythology. But the reason that you're asking me this is that we were driving, we were on 70. That is correct. And I said, I don't want to listen to Donald Trump give his inaugural address on the radio because we were driving right at the time when he was being inaugurated. And um, you said, I really think it's important that we listen to it. Mm -hmm. And I was driving and you were in the passenger seat. And I know that you're going to comment on your emotions about it, but I was, I was weeping. It wasn't just crying. It was just like tears streaming down my face with everything that he said. And the words that I remember the most were not the repetition of his... Um, you know, his battle cry of wanting to make America great again, which is, it's so fucking lazy because it's the, it's, it's not even a change of a single word from Reagan. It's the exact same phrase, just with an exclamation point. Um, people have such short memories. And, but him referring to that he was going to stop the American carnage. And I think if you look at the last year... Not that um, 400,000 dead yeah. is because of violence, but I would consider it kind of like a systemic violence sure. because I'm not a scientist, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a data person who studies this, but there have been very, very smart people that have said that this virus could have been mitigated and we could have probably saved around 50% of those lives yeah. if leadership a year ago had taken this as though it was a serious, deadly respiratory virus. So that is a kind of violence. It's kind of a systemic violence. And so it's apparent to me that he did the opposite of what he said. He did not stop any carnage. He exacerbated it. And it's evident in the fact that in the final six weeks of his presidency, his administration put forth the execution, the federal execution of 13 death row inmates and I am absolutely 100% against capital punishment. I, right. I don't think it should be used in any case. I think we should have a um, moratorium on it again. Yep. And including the death of the first woman on death row since, I think, 1972. And it's all of these things are like, no amount of OxyClean is going to get these stains out. Like, these are permanent stains on all of us. And I think back to that moment in the car with you four years ago and crying, not only because of what was happening at the time and listening to such um, a terrible description and view of our culture and our country and what is... what like the potential of people in this country is. Um, and I hesitate to call Donald Trump a man because I think that's despairing to men. 
disparaging. That's the word I think. It's probably despairing too, but uh, I think yeah, it's, it's disparaging, disparaging to actual men to put him among their ranks. Um, I mean, I recognize his personhood, but I that just incalculable losses that he has created, and I feel like his words were reversely and perversely prophetic that day. Yeah, and. I think he is I think he and the Republican Party and I'm not going to like give the Democrats a break on this either because there's something truly broken and I just refuse to believe that like a violent schism is the way to solve it. So I feel like tomorrow's really like profound but I'm also really, really scared. I'm really scared. Like I'm, I kind of don't want to watch the inauguration because I'm afraid mm -hmm. that something terrible is going to happen, and I don't want to view it. Well, I mean, there's that. That's part of it. I mean, every time you, I mean, for the next four years, any time that Biden or Harris make makes a public appearance, it's like, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But. But the thing is, is like... I mean, back to your original question, that's where I was four years yeah, ago. Yeah. Where were you? Well, I was I was in a car uh, with you. And I was... I, I describe it to, to folks like this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you know, when he was getting inaugurated, Ellen Cherry was, was crying at the radio and I was cussing at the radio. <laughs> and, and it really was that thing where I was just... I was really... Because um, I, I was planning on using... And I believe I did use his inaugural speech for my class for rhetorical analysis because I wanted students to take a look at it and say, okay, you know, we're looking at audience purpose, you know, um, you know, effect and decorum and all the things that rhetorical analysis does. So on, on one hand, I was really listening carefully to what he was going to say because although he was a known quantity, there was an unknown quantity that we were hoping for, like... I think at that point, although, yeah, it's not a far stretch to say that he was going to, he was going to, he, he was not going to do the things that I wanted him to do or I want my government to do. But I thought, you know, I had this like slight glimmer, glint, a glint of hopefulness that he would do the right thing. And of course, you know, within 24 hours, Sean Spicer came out and said, you know, the first big lie of the whole thing was like, you know, this is the largest collection of people who have ever been at an inauguration ever, period. What's wrong with you media people? And I was like, oh, good Lord. And I was like, okay, well, now I know, you know. Um, so, but as we we're, as, as, as we're traveling through there, it was also still felt uh, unreal. It was, yeah. you still had this like, man, I can't believe this is the situation that we're in, you know. And how's this going to work itself out? And I kind of committed myself at that point to I wasn't going to shave my beard for until until he lost. Um, and you know, I, mean, I haven't I, shaved my beard since he was elected either. And, and your beard looks really good. Thank you. Like you know, like all the fades you're putting into it, and, right. and you got the EC over by your sideburns. <laughs> right. It's really nice. Represent. What up, City Arts Nation? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that like it's. There was a sense that, okay, we have this buffoonish clown 
who has no experience in leadership, mm -hmm. has a proven track record of being a confidence man and, a, you know, bilking millions out of not only other people, but also the federal government and tax breaks is not nice. No, he's not a nice man. Is a self-professed sexual predator. Um, a narcissist. I didn't, at that point, I didn't think he was like full-blown sociopath. Hmm. But I, I but then like to have uh. this hope that like what you're talking about, this this glint of hope that there were going to be, you know, one of the brilliant things about our, the construction of our government is that there's these three branches that are equal and separate. Right. Executive, judicial, legislative. So there was the hope that, okay, putting the judicial aside, because that's a totally hosed system that is, there should never be any court in the world ruling the affairs of human beings where a person is appointed for life. Right. Because, first of all, what a drag to have to like commit yourself. Like, don't you want to retire? I mean, maybe not everybody. I love working. I love being creative. I don't think I'll ever retri retire from being creative. But I don't know if I would, you know, like. You got to hear that gun case one more time. Right. Exactly. Like, like it's, oh, God, you, guys are, you guys are still doing this? Right. So putting the judiciary system aside, there was this hope that in the legislative branch, because of its large numbers of people that was growing more diverse with each election and more actually representative, especially in 2018, that there would be this a little bit more radical resistance. And I want to, we were talking earlier about the difference between um, when Donald Trump won the election in 2016, I was not happy about it because I believed that he believed everything that was coming out of his mouth. Right. The second he came down that escalator, I remember telling a close relative of mine, I was just like, the, the absolute, and I use this word very precisely, shit that he says, because that's what it is. It's just a lot of, just loads of it. Yeah. I was like, he believes it when it's coming out of his mouth. And when you put a person like that in power, it's very, very dangerous. So when he was elected, I accepted that he had lost the popular vote, but won the electoral college and said, this is the issue. That's how it works. We have a flawed system because fewer numbers of people get to control the majority, right? The majority voted for Hillary Clinton, and yet the minority got to win the election because of the way the system is set up. Now, I did not object. I did not say that Donald Trump is not my president. I rarely called him the president because it hurts me to have a buffoon being our chief of, you know, our head of state yeah. for our country, because I think that Americans on the whole are kind, loving, intelligent, humane, creative, incredibly creative people, diverse, amazing. You and I have traveled throughout this country. That's one of the benefits of being an artist and a traveling musician is that I've experienced Somebody said this to me years ago, and I thought it was such a great way of describing what it's like to be a musician. It's like having a passport to all different class, socioeconomic people because rich people want to be around you. You mm -hmm. get to be around people who don't have money. There's like 
You mean other musicians? <laughs> you know what I mean, right. Yeah. But there's, it's a passport to all of these worlds. Right. And to be like songwriters, which what is our job? Our job is to observe and report back. Whether it's we're observing ourselves or observing other people, we are reporters, basically. Sure. Um, delivering information in a way that we hope appeals. And, and maybe not reporters, we're opinion columnists. <laughs> you know, like this is, we're trying to sway somebody one way or another with our opinion. Um, well, still I, we're trying to tell the truth. Yes, I agree. Um, in that election, I accepted that Donald Trump is the president. And that he's going to be president unless he dies or resigns or is impeached and convicted, he will be the president right. for f at least four years. The, I'm hearing these reports over the last two months, you know, of people who refuse to accept that even though this has been proven time and time again through the legal system. Right, which was... Through a stringent system. Which was appointed by both, you know, uh, Republican and democratic it's like bipartisan appointments and, right. and it's and and a majority of people that trump has pushed through in the, in the last three years right and so using the rule of law illuminating that this has been one of the most transparent and least fraudulent elections that we have had in recent history so for people to say that joe biden is not that they're not that this is my issue, is that they're saying, well, people on the left said that Donald Trump was not their president. I'm not one of those people. Right. And I wouldn't even consider, I never call myself a leftist. I call myself a progressive humanitarian. Mm -hmm. And yes, my politics, if you have to classify them as left or right, are more left wing um, to the point of I am a democratic socialist. I believe in the, the distribution of wealth as you're creating wealth. Um, my parents and I have this discussion a lot that it's wonderful that the Gates Foundation exists and that Warren Buffett exists and that there's these billionaires who choose to give away their wealth. But I think frequently about the amount of exploitation that took place as they were building wealth. Mm -hmm. Now, are they personally responsible for that? And I think, I was having this discussion with my parents on Sunday. I was like, think about the people who mined the copper and precious metals that created the computers that Microsoft ran their software on for the last 25 years. Did those people financially benefit from the wealth that Microsoft, the corporation, and Gate, Bill Gates was building at that time? Does he not, I'm not quantifying or qualifying if he deserves the wealth or not. I'm just saying that the system was set up to not distribute that wealth to the people that were creating it. And I know that makes me sound like what? Uh, a Marxist. Oh, yeah, the Marxists. Those guys. <laughs> Those guys. They had I, great I really beards. Enjoyed, they had great movies. <laughs> really yes. enjoyed that, that. That Harpo. He was... I was going to say they have great Chico. beards. The Karl Marx and his uh, great beard. But my point is that like when, when right-wing people are on the media right now for the last six weeks and telling us that they're not that they have just as much right to disavow Joe Biden as not their president is, is not fair, a not fair assessment of many of us who didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016 and yet accepted and chose to resist. Yeah. And there's a difference between resisting and being delusional. And that's what is so scary to me about the last two weeks is the 
the deeply rooted delusion. I feel like I've been talking a lot. Um, you have been. Why don't you talk a little bit and I'll take some drinks. Okay. Um, of my protein shake. protein shake, yeah. Not alcohol. I don't metabolize alcohol well. well I'm, I'm just drinking tea. Boo-hoo. What? Tea, quote, unquote. Yeah, it's no, ginger it's, mango. Ginger mango in the house. That's right. What up? Let me tell you about my ginger mango. Anyhow. Um, yes, go ahead. Okay. Um, Sorry, I was pointing at you. Right. I was just saying, yeah, I yeah. want you to speak because... I was speaking, and you allowed me to. This Thank is the, you. Uh, the Ellen Cherry Diatribe Hour. I hope you've enjoyed all that. <laughs> um, well, when I think about when I heard that number four hundred thousand people, like we crossed that threshold yesterday. Uh, well, I just heard about it today. So, and I was driving down here. A person dying every seven minutes. No, it's it's uh, two. It's uh, every thirty seconds. A person is dying. That's the estimate. Is that just in California? I thought the estimate was like in the country every in the, in, seven minutes. No, the country, they said it was every two minutes or every minute uh, two people die. Yeah, it's insane. And by the end of February, we'll be close to 500,000. But the, the, the reason I bring that up is just, you know, here we're getting this, this tally happens on the last day of his office. And when I think about that American carnage quote, and it's like, you know, he had a decision to make in January where it's it's like, well, I don't... He wanted to keep the numbers low because he wanted to get his... For, for re-election purposes. And yeah, okay, you're... I'm not going to say he's a politician, but that's a politician's way of thinking about it, which is, you know, a transactional way of looking at it. And I'm not saying I would have voted for Donald Trump, but I wouldn't have been so like on edge if he had actually done the job he was supposed to do and which was simply stepping back which is letting the experts do what they are supposed to do and and if he got on his bullhorn and said hey guys wear masks you know i I know this is tough i know this is really terrible but if he had done what an actual person does which is to say these people have studied it their whole lives and they know they are in public health i'm not (laughs) right Uh, and uh, and had that been different I mean, I still would have been voting for for for, for uh, Joe Biden, but I also would have I would have been like, "Hey, man, the guy did his job on that. Great, you know." Like I, I wouldn't have felt as well. I don't know if that's true because then you have the babies in cages and you have like the zillion other things. But just and I was thinking about that number. I was like, "Man, what? Why can't you just?" It's one thing to say, "Yeah, I want the numbers to be low," but it's also like. Yeah, I want to. All these people need to be saved <laughs> in some capacity, and we have the we. It's not like we don't have the capability. It's not like we don't have the know-how. It's not like we're. we're I mean, of course we could do it, but to simply deny that. And I, th- I think the one thing I want to come back to also is about when you're talking about this. Um, I think it's the violence of neglect. Is is what you're looking at? His inaction is what really became the thing that that hurt us the most. Right. And abusive negligence. I mean the 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 fact that ever since, you know, I guess like maybe October, he he stopped talking about COVID. Like this is this is killing at that point. It's killing like Had you he know, even contracted it at that point? I think that's when he contracted it, right? Yeah. 
Um, and at that point, he, you know, 1,500 people a day were dying. And you don't even talk about it. Like, no, this should be the one thing that you are talking about. You, 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 because and because people are dying. People are, like, I, I can't imagine it because I don't, I, I only know people through other people who have died from, from COVID. Um, and so I wasn't really close, but I know my friends were grieving about it. And when I was making my record back in, in April, when um, Hal Wilner died, who, you know, is this great music producer and all this other stuff, you know, we had to take, we had to take a week off of, of working on the record because I mean, he was personal friends with Eric Amble and, and his wife, Mary Lee Cordes. <clears throat> and so when I saw that news and, you know, I, I, I emailed Eric and I didn't know that they were close, but I knew that he was involved uh, on some of their projects. You know, Eric was... He was devastated, and to to hear that human story about it, it's like, oh man! And that was way back in April. Mm-hmm. Like that was like that was the beginning of it. And when you when you look at people as just numbers rather than people, if you if you're doing that transactional, uh, I got this percentage here, I got to keep that low. It's like, well, maybe you should look at I got to keep these people alive <laughs> rather than keep the numbers low. Keep the people alive. Because these are people who are, they have families. It's the transactional part of it too is so, it's such an important word to use because, so um, anti-abortion, I'm not going to say pro-life because I don't actually want to put them in a pro-life category, but anti-abortion, anti-choice, people who believe that abortion should be completely restricted in this country and unavailable to women as a form of reproductive control and bodily autonomy are very transactional about it. They are on the whole very concerned with the fetus and not necessarily the person who has to carry the fetus and give birth to the child and then care for the child. I'm not, I'm not trying to whitewash or like um, paint with a broad brush all people who are anti-abortion. But the messaging that I've received as a woman in this country has been that the concern for the fetus because of laws passed in places like Mississippi and Indiana where they have fetal heartbeat bill, they have um, women can be prosecuted for manslaughter and murder if they have an abortion because they have um, given the fetus personhood and then to not fight as virulently for COVID protocols, mask wearing, and physical distancing that would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives is so confusing to me. I don't understand how the party of quote unquote life, the Republican party that they associate themselves with the pro-life movement, which I don't like to use that term, which I just said, wasn't pro-life they were absolutely for death yeah, they, yeah, yeah and if you look at the people who have died the majority of them are not upper like super rich white oh, people no, they're poor people from from difficult backgrounds right socioeconomically challenged people yeah. who have and had people to of color yes and it's it's devastating to think that and this is, and I'm, I'm especially critical of um, 
people who I would, they would consider themselves moderate Republicans. They're not the extreme right-wing Republicans. It's kind of like the same thing that, um, I read it again yesterday because I try to read it around Martin Luther King Jr. Day every year is the letter from Birmingham jail. Mm -hmm. And I read it again yesterday and he refers to the, the biggest stumbling block for, for black people is the white moderate. I believe that that's close to the quote. I may be misquoting that letter. Um, and I think that that's really, is that the, from the letter from Birmingham jail? I think that's what it's from. I, I, I apologize. <laughs> Somebody will look it up. And yeah. Somebody's going to fact check that. <laughs> right. Jim Baker is going to get on you about that. <laughs> right. But the idea of like the, so I'm equating the white moderate, the, the liberal moderate, basically mm-hmm. a person who, who disavows direct action for radical change especially in terms of, and the context of that is in terms of civil rights, is that when you look at the, like, the moderate Republicans, who I would consider there are people in my family, close family members, who are, consider themselves moderate Republicans, friends that I grew up with in Texas that are considered moderate Republicans, and I wish that they would refer to themselves as conservatives and actually disavow the Republican Party. I wish they would separate from that. Right. And be true to a conviction that says, no, we are about these conservative values. Our conservative values are fiscal responsibility in the government, which means that there needs to be transparency. And that, yes, you look at projects, and I I agree with having conservative fiscal values thinking put on the table, because there has to be. However, you have to balance it with progressive thinking that says... Me, as a person who makes $20,000 a year being taxed at 15% or 23% (laughs) on my income, how is that fair than taxing somebody who makes over $500,000 a year at 8% or less because they have managed to funnel their things through a business? It's it's totally topsy-turvy. So that, that aside, my point is that like, I'm really going forward... I want Republicans, people who I self-identify as Republicans, to just do a deep soul dive, like many of us as Democrats have done. Because there are so many of us that had the dream of Bernie Sanders. And, and yes, I'm going to use the word radical change and thinking about addressing socioeconomic problems as a way of, of adjusting the scales for racial and gender equality. Right. Like that's the way that we can do it. Money fucking talks in this country. The way that we answer those issues, the way we make reparations to people of color, poor people and women is with money and it's with economic justice. That's the way that we do it. And we have to do that with radical progressive thinking. And I would, if the Democrats were not moving towards that as the democratic base gets is starts to be younger and more progressive and they are digital what they refer to as digital natives they are familiar with the landscape of social media and have grown up on the internet are much savvier than older generation older democrats their thinking is different being queer is not an unusual thing you know it's um the family is not necessarily defined as a heteronormative heterosexual couple that has 2.5 children it's defined differently it's open and what have i always said about openness 
It's, it's a good thing. Yeah, openness is better than closed. Mm. I think I actually used it to say closedness. Closedness. My yeah. friend Peter Brun and I would always talk about this. Openness is better than closedness. And I want the moderate Republicans to say that is not who we are. That is a that is a cultish death cult. <laughs> Because that's really what they have proven. But like, you know, I don't, that's what's was like how many members of the Republican Party in the House, 117, yeah. challenged the election results. I'm going to yeah. get fact checked on that too, because I'm so horrified by everything that's been happening that I don't have. Yeah, I think it was like right. a total of 146 overall from both House and Senate. Yeah, that's insane. It's insane. And like. What was our essay supposed to be on this week? I think we were supposed to write about food. Yeah, we talked about food. <laughs> I don't want to talk about food. Well, we're obviously not talking about food. We're, no, this is food for thought. This is food for thought. And we haven't even talked about music. Okay, well, we can talk about music. <laughs> um, just a well, but there's another question that's that's there, which is which is this. There's a bug now, flying around. For anybody, this is not a gross thing necessarily, but at Ellen Cherry's headquarters, she has lots of plants. Lots of plants. Lots of greenery Little around. house babies. House plant babies. And one of these plants had some sort of infestation of gnats. And so if you ever find yourself, if you're ever lucky enough to be at uh, uh, ECHQ, um, you have to kind of like just settle into the fact that there's going to be some sort of tiny fly that's going to be either go up your nose or you'll in, inevitably you'll breathe one in, which I've done several times. <laughs> the guinea pigs sometimes sneeze, and I think that probably one got up their nose. Yeah. So. <laughs> but but these little flies are like the great 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 grandchildren of the original fly. Yeah, they're there's there's and well because Ellen Cherry is really pro life. She can't bring herself to to get rid of them. So, um, anyhow, uh, the other question I think we should think about is like, well, what are you doing? What are you doing tomorrow for the inauguration? Um, I think you and I are going to watch it tomorrow, right? We are. Yeah, we're going to watch it, which is going to be great. Yep, we're going to get some Thai food. Oh, are we? I don't know. Maybe. Probably not, because it won't be open by then. Right. And also, I don't know if I can eat Thai food right now. Yeah. I'm on a Blandy Blanderson diet. Well, we'll just think about Thai food. We'll just dream of Thai food. Yeah, um, yeah I'm not looking at Joe Biden as like the... I, I don't think that January 21st, 2021, 1-21-21 is going to be like... You know, I, the, sorry, I keep hitting the microphone with my shoe. Do it. I'm edit take, that later. I'm trying to take my shoes off. Um that I don't think that like the day after inauguration that like suddenly it's going to be like we went to the Korean spa and got exfoliated <laughs> and like had a massage and like emerge completely like new and shiny. Right. Um, God, I miss the Korean spa. If you guys don't know what a Korean spa is, it's amazing. And it is closed. Boo. Boo. I was there almost exactly a year ago. I haven't taken a bath since then. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, David. <laughs> Burn. Burn, David. It burns, Ellen Cherry. Burn, Ellen Cherry. <laughs> um, so anyway, I don't think that like Thursday morning we're going to wake up and everything's going to be great. And I, the amount of repair work, 
I do feel that both you and I are part of the people that are especially equipped because of our life experiences to deal with trauma and to help guide people through the painful process of healing from trauma, which is what a lot of people are going to be going through. But this is the thing I was thinking about earlier that I, you know, wanted to talk with you about a little bit is like, when I listen to reports of, of people, and I listen to the podcast, The Daily from the New York Times, and I read the New York Times, that's one of my major news sources, and I'm not on social media very much anymore, so I don't get a lot of news from there. But there's interviews with people who are, they are just stepping up to the line of the words civil war. Right. They, and I can see in them like this lust for it, this want to have that dangerous thing. I don't think that they realize like in the, the last actual civil war that we had, the estimated dead, because they don't know everyone that died. Right. 735,000 people. They weren't fun deaths, no, much like the 400,000 people who have died of COVID this year. Brutal, cruel, terrible deaths. And we do not want to have a civil war. Like, a civil war is not a good thing. And I, I don't know what to say to those people who are like, in their language and in their thoughts and yeah. in their hearts, it seems like they really want that. Well, they, they, they you know, if you're listening to, uh, listening to the, I guess it was the daily or no, it was uh, the New Yorker, an article I was, I was listening to on that where they, you know, one woman was saying, well, you know what we need to do? We need to bring more guns next time. We just need to do it once and that'll take care of it. And I'm like, Oh no, I don't think that you understand how that works because, you you all just broke into the Capitol, stormed it, and had no idea what to do next. <laughs> yeah, because there were some people there who obviously had very very nefarious yeah, and they they had a plan malicious ideas about imprisoning lawmakers. And if you imprison somebody and they witness you, we've all seen like the Law and Order shows mm -hmm. that like you know. They, that's, that's how they get you. You don't want to be witness. You don't leave witnesses alive. And mm. that there were people there who were actually like had fantasized and then prepared for brutal harm yeah. to legislators. Yeah. And I think on the day that it was happening, can we talk a little bit about the um, the attempted insurrection? Because I'm not going to call it. There were there was a rally. I, I do believe that there were people there that went to sure. go to a rally. Yeah, not everybody was there to, to go for an insurrection. Right. And then there are people that decided to, like, let the mob mentality, I don't know, just overtake their delusion and storm into the Capitol. And I my father called me from Texas and said, are you watching this? And I was like, I'm not going to give my eyeballs to that right now. And because I told him, I was like, I'm afraid that people are going to die. And then five people died because of it. And I think it's a sixth, if you account, is the officer who ultimately committed suicide, is he the sixth person that was there? Yeah. That was, you know, considered part of the count of dead. And it's like, I feel like I saw a couple of pictures the days in the days following, and they were the ridiculous ones of the people who were like, I'm not going to disparage the cosplay community because cosplay <laughs> is about like 
fantasy and fun and yeah. celebration of life. Yeah, but it was the it was the it was the guy who was very unwell. Yes, wearing wearing his Viking helmet cap and like. First of all, I think no shirt, no shoes, no service, dude. Put your shirt on. Nobody wanted to see that in the Capitol building. You're supposed to be wearing a suit yeah. and suit and tie. Anyway, um, I'm not going to criticize him for his his his, his sartorial splendor, right? But like the, I don't know. I lost my train of thought. But the point is, oh, I saw these images and I was just like, man, that looks bad. Yeah. But in the weeks since, it, it's worse. Like you're starting to see the the violence and the trauma that the legislators and the people that were in the building were experiencing because you have, you have a marauder that you don't know if they're armed or not banging down your door, you're under your desk with your staff right. or you're in a secure location, but you don't even know if it's secure. And then what about the police officer who like acted as a decoy and got these... Yeah, lured them away. Yeah, like the, brought the insurrectionists away and, and saved people's lives. And it's like, the, it was a, an incredibly violent situation. And it's the shame and grief that I feel is the same way that I feel that I felt when Dylan Roof shot nine people inside of a church. And that other guy who went into the synagogue two years ago and shot those people. And the guy that went in, and these are all men. Well, all guys. These are all males doing this shooting that are widely reported in New Zealand. Um, I feel the same amount of grief because the capital is is the t the t our temple of democracy. Right. It's a sacred space. It's a sacred space and they violated it. And... What did they expect to happen? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they, I don't think they knew. Like I I honestly you know some people went in there and they were rifling through stuff and taking papers and stuff like that but like what do you what do you, all that's going to do is you're going to take a picture of it and then you're going to put it you know when parlor comes back up you're just going to post it to parlor and say yes, see I told you. And it's like um I really don't think that's where the secret stuff is kept. <laughs> I mean like I I you know you're going to bust in there and then, and then what you're, you know, the government, you're not an elected official. <laughs> you, you don't have power. I, I know for one moment you think you're taking back power or you are channeling some sort of power. And it's true that you had the power to disrupt them, but disruption is not about changing anything. Disruption is, is, is a pause. And unfortunately <clears throat> we have a, a, a grand statute of laws <laughs> And institutions that have been, you know, with us since 1776, if you want to make that argument, that will... You mean fortunately? Yeah, fortunately, yeah. yeah. That will, that is going to render the, the situation, which is you're going to go to jail. Um, you're going to go to prison. You're, you're, you're going to get charged with this. And but the question is like, how do we do, how do we transform the view of the person who goes to federal prison for committing a felony of being an insurrectionist inside the Capitol on January 6th. How do we transform that for a person who's so deluded who thinks they're a martyr now for the cause? Well, they're about to enter a prison system that they think is probably the right thing to do for people because they've never been in prison. And they're going to find out pretty quickly that the prison system's not about rehabilitation as much as it is it's about... It's punitive. Yeah, it's, it's punishment and it's... And it's, um, it's about disenfranchisement and 
um, you know, separating the, the people from humanity and being, uh, I've been listening to the Ear Hustle podcast, uh, season six. I'm going to go back and listen to all the seasons because it's so good. And it's so interesting to, to hear these guys talk about their experiences in prison. And the, these are people who didn't think that they were, they, their leader has not been held accountable, so they won't be held accountable. You have some of these guys also now saying, you know, Donald Trump, please pardon me. Like, oh, my God. I'm like, oh man, I, you know, I wouldn't say he wouldn't pardon them, but I have a hard time believing that he's going to pardon them because I think he's probably going to try to push that as far away from him as he, as he possibly Plus can. Plus the fact that I don't think that they would have had, they're not going to be able to pay as much as other people that he is pardoning. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's pay to play. So, and, you know, they're going to they're gonna get exactly what they're going to get. <laughs> There's a, a woman, and I just... It's disparaging to women to call her that a, a person who, ugh, anyway, she's a realtor um, in Texas who like went on the news and she had taken a private jet up to be an insurrectionist. Well, maybe she went to go to the rally and yeah. then she became an insurrectionist there yeah. and she was arrested and, you know, federally indicted with a crime, a felony, I believe. And she like, you know, she had enough money and resources because she's privileged mm -hmm. in many ways. It appears that she had enough money to fly a private jet to Washington, D.C. to take time off work to go and. Well, I, that's how I get down here. I take my. my <laughs> from I take, Westminster. I, I take the Why Aren't You Famous jet. That's right. That's from what, Westminster to That Baltimore. fundraiser that we did where we raised three grand back oh, two, three amazing. years ago. You, uh, you know what? You're really good with money. I had no I idea. I turned it into a helicopter. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's invisible, just like Wonder Woman's plane. That's right. That's right. Nobody can see it or hear it. It lands on top of the building. <laughs> so, um, so anyhow, this woman. Yeah. Like, through her incredible privilege is also now out on bail. She's been indicted. Hmm. I'm assuming she was arrested. And, you know, my understanding of the criminal justice system is that if you're arrested, then there's a bail hearing. And so she must have had enough money to get bail. But she was on television and she turned directly to the camera and said, I think that I was... First of all, she said, I think I was there because of what Donald Trump said or has said in the past. Right. And I believe that he should give me a pardon. And it's like, I the second I saw that, I was like, oh, no, all these people who are insurrectionists, there's still time that he could just be like, sure. furiously, like, I'm sure that they're going to get him more Sharpies to like sign all these pardons <laughs> oh, and pardon all these people. And I was just like, that's not good like how do we how do we keep them from immunity because there's the other thing that i don't feel like we've even talked about yet although i feel like we talked about it um during the resolutions episode that the racial aspect of this riot this insurrection is that if black people had rallied and then walked to the Capitol and broken in and threatened the lives of lawmakers, there would have been hundreds of them dead. Well, even if they didn't break into the Capitol, they still would have been right. <laughs> still would have been attacked. And like the 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 racial aspect of it is just like incredibly painful to watch, especially having like participated in some marches this summer. And I was very like fortunate in that I'm very fortunate and privileged because I happen to be white. Um, and that is, you know, a cloak of privilege that I wear my whole life. But, and I wasn't party or subject to any of the violence that the protesters experienced. The peaceful protesters experienced the summer when they were like 
protesting murder. <laughs> and we're not, these people were not protesting. This is the thing is that like, I think they think of it as a protest that they were protesting the election. They were there at a rally at the behest of their, the cult leader, mm-hmm. <laughs> Donald Trump. And he incited them to violence which wasn't a hard stretch. It's not like they weren't primed for it. No, they were ready for it. Because remember, when we started the beginning of this conversation, his whole speech was this dystopic presentation yeah. of America. It was the vision he gave people. And he's been feeding them that trash for four years. It, was, it wasn't three months later after the inauguration. He said, you know, 300 million, you know, or there's like, you know, 30 million illegal votes or whatever it was. And he said, yeah, these are all illegal votes. That's why I lost the popular... I mean, he started that narrative way back in, in How can people 2017. Be, this is the other thing that, like... I mean, I don't know where we are on time. We're getting close to the end. I've talked to my... My parents and I have had some really enlightening conversations in the last 10 years of my life. And it's really fascinating to see my parents separate from the one tradition that their parents and their parents' parents brought from Eastern Europe, and the Mediterranean and all the places that they emigrated from, which is our religious tradition of Catholicism. My parents, I hope that they don't mind me outing them, have left the Catholic Church. And my mom is very open about it. My dad's a little bit more, um, he holds his cards closer to the vest about it. But my mom will say, you know, she just didn't want to be a part of that organization anymore because of the pedophilia, the dealing with with pedophile priests in the Mm -hmm. Catholic Church. And we've had these illuminating conversations and when they talk about like the, we talk about what happens to you when you, when you leave a religious practice and your worldview starts to open up. This is my experience. And I think I can speak for them because this is their experience too, but their worldview has opened up. And we were talking about this on Sunday and they said, I don't, my mother said, I don't understand how I can be so different from some of my close relatives who were raised in a very similar environment in terms of politics. And I said, because you moved away, you moved to a different environment. Mm -hmm. Your worldview was broken open by that. It may not have been like, oh, like you went to see, you know, how people live in Brazil and then you lived there for 20 years and like experienced that whole culture, but you did move away from your hometown. And, oh, there's the music. And I'm not saying that you have to move away from your hometown to get a, a worldview, but I'm. It's so distracting to listen to it because it's so good. It is. It's such great music, Ellen Cherry. So you were saying, let's let's. Oh, so my point is like, how do we get? I I'm not opposed to magical thinking, right? And I'm not opposed to the magical thinking that that is required to have a spiritual life, but is it? Damaging people's ability to be logical and reasonable and making them more susceptible to somebody like him and people, and I'm not just blaming him, but people like him who espouse terrible, hateful, cruel ideas. Well, you know, that's a question for another podcast. Right. Because we have to, we have to go. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I feel I like it was a very too. heady intellectual conversation. We didn't talk about music once. We didn't. So, ellencherry.bandcamp.com forward slash subscribe. That's right. Creative projects there. Right on. What about you? Uh, junestar.bandcamp.com forward slash subscribe. And there's, yeah. Scott Smith on guitar. And now it's fading out. So. Right. 
All right. Well, we'll see you guys some other time. But it just feels like such an. Ab- <laughs> it feels like such an abrupt end. Well, but I feel like if we're gonna end on it, we should end on disco. Yes. I like it. Disco. Disco. I like it. I like it. Disco. Hmm. I like it. I like it. Okay. <laughs> we did it. We we finished. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. We're gonna say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Ooh, disco, I like it.